Welcome to a night of total terror. Welcome to the Undead Wookiee Podcast, Episode 16, Suspiria. The Undead Wookiee is a fortnightly-ish podcast where we focus on horror and sci-fi, but occasionally we will dip into other genres because here on the Undead Wookiee, our nerdiness knows no bounds. Hello and welcome back. Like I said at the start, this is Episode 16, and we will be looking at Dario Argento's classic Suspiria. Now, before I introduce my fantastic co-host today, let's check out the trailer. It's useless to try and explain it to you. You wouldn't understand. It all seems so absurd. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time to introduce my very special guest today. He thought he got away, but we managed to drag him back for one more round. Uh, most of you will remember him from our um, Wickerman episode. This is, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only Liam. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, not too bad. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm... Uh, from a long, hard day of uh, teaching, and we're crawling to the end of term, so I may get a, I'm a little bit slap-happy. Um, a lot of caffeine, but it's probably the best way to actually discuss Suspiria, because, um, truth be told, it kind of feels like a film that somebody has sort of made whilst drinking a lot of stimulants, or taking a lot of stimulants. Well, we'll get to that. There is a, a connection there somewhere, actually. Mm, ooh, at some point. Intriguing, intriguing. Now, of course, Suspiria was uh, filmed 1977. Uh, it was directed by Dario Argento. Uh, the screenplay was by Dario Argento. 
and Dario um, Daria Nicoldi. Um, the cast uh, was an international cast of both. Um, a lot of Italian cinema at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, was sort of uh, mixed mixed international cast. You had Jessica Harper who plays Susie Banyan. You have Stephanie Cassini as Sarah. Uh, you have Flavio Bucci as Daniel. Um, you have Gregory. Here we go. This is an interesting one. Gregory Snegoff as Daniel. Um, you have yeah. You have Miguel Bossi as Mark. We have Alida Valley as Miss Tanner, and we have Joan Bennett as Madame Blanc, and the great, and I totally forgot he was in this film, uh, was Udo Kerr. Udo Kerr. But he's not being, he's not very, he's not very much himself in it. He's very playing against type. Yes, but also, have you noticed he also sounds very different? Well. Is it him dubbing himself in it? That's no, the thing. it's not. It's it's completely different. I mean, lo- you know, as is sort of the tradition with a lot of, um, um, particularly Italian horror and Euro horror at this time. They did a lot yeah. with ADR, um, which was given of Italian filmmaking in general. At the yeah, time. yeah. Um, but he, for some reason, he's dubbed by somebody else, um, and it just sounds bizarre because it looks like Udo Care, but it's not. And he's got a really small part. Um, you expect because the way the conversation and the detail that his character sort of goes into, um, you expect him to have a bigger part, but he doesn't. He just sort of pops up. Um, he's sort of exposition purposes. Yeah, yeah. This is the scene where we explain all the weird shit. Yeah, but like, which is taking about an hour to get to that point. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's been going on for about an hour, but only now we're sort of getting an idea of what actually what's going on, and even then. Doesn't really explain what's going on. No, I mean it's not up there with the sort of the Matrix uh, bullshit. That sort of uh, in terms of I'm just going to say a lot of big words at you, Um, but it doesn't sort of clarify anything. No, it has a little bit more. um, It has a bit more confusion, to be be honest. Because when the rest of it, okay, yeah, you've told us all this backstory. What the hell's going on now? So. The story itself, um, I would say, because usually from the trailers that you you know we put up before the film and everything, you're able to get the gist of what's going on. Um, Not this, but I think we actually probably need to give a little bit of an explanation. So the general gist is you have Susie Banyan, who travels to Germany to perfect her ballet skills. Um, she arrives at the Tanz Dance Academy in the pouring rain and is refused admission after another woman is seen fleeing the school. She returns the next morning and this time is let in. Uh, she soon learns that the young woman uh, she saw flee in the previous evening, Pat Hingle. Now, that's a great name. It sounds like a north, somebody from north, really. It's Pat Hingle. Uh, Last of summer, the Coronation Street character. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happened to her. She didn't go, you know, she didn't go to Manchester. She went to Germany to perfect her ballet skills and uh, was hideously killed. <laughs> Anyway, Pat Tingle is found murdered. Oh, she sounds like a professional wrestler from the 70s. Mm, that's very... That's, yes, someone like, like Pat Roach or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, she's found dead, and then strange things soon begin to occur. Susie becomes ill and is put on a special diet. The school becomes infested with maggots. Odd sounds abound. And Daniel, the pianist, is, you know, he's killed by his own dog. Um, oh, by the way, uh, we are going to go into spoilers on this episode. So if the film was released in 1977, so if you haven't yep. seen it now, 
you've had plenty of time. Pause it. Go and watch it. And then come back to us. Um, so uh, Susie goes and does a little bit of research. And she soon finds out that the ballet school was once a witch's coven. And she soon learns that it still is. Um, that's about as most as succinct as it gets, really, doesn't it? It sounds pretty straightforward when you sort of explain the plot, but when you actually watch it, yeah. <laughs> it's not that straightforward. Mm. It, you know, it, as a lot of these films, like The Wicker Man as well, that had a very straightforward plot. Yeah. But even then, it had moments of when it sort of just completely deviated from what actually was going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and the, the op- I mean, the, what the best way, I think, to describe this film, and I can't remember who it was, so I'm going to paraphrase them, and I do apologise if I get this wrong. Somebody described, I think a film critic once described Suspiria as the closest you would get to uh, filming someone's nightmare. I would agree with that. It's all, well, it's so unnatural, the film. is. Everything's about it. The performances are somewhat unnatural. The yeah. lighting is unnatural. Yeah. The, the set is unnatural. Now, I love the lighting. I mean, I love the mm. look of this film. I think the look of this film, is, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's superb. Um, but the, for me, and it's very much sort of, the second the film starts, it feels like a dream. Um, mm. When she it's walks through it. the air, yeah, when she walks through the airport and mm. the doors open, the music starts, it cuts back to her, it's silent. The doors, you know, she looks out the front again, the music starts again. And from that second, she steps out and the wind is blowing and it's hammering down with rain. It feels like a nightmare. Mm. Well, it runs on, the film, I'd say, runs on sort of like dream logic. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. really run on, you know, on a sort of real life logic. It runs on a very primal dreamlike logic. Sort of like a fairy tale somewhat. It's got very fairy tale elements in there as well, I'd say as well. Yeah, it does. And it's sort of, I mean, the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of this film it's it is just it is, your senses are completely bombarded um, it's an assault the film is yeah yeah and i mean like the sort of uh, i mean the goblin soundtrack and i'm gonna make no apologies i like goblin i like goblin i've got a phone i think this is their masterpiece yeah yeah it is it, it's a it's a great great piece um, and it works so well with this film. Um, I because could you imagine any? I think the only other people who could possibly, and I may get stoned um, if next time I leave my house for for mentioning this, but is you know the only other people I think could probably score this were Tangerine Dream. Tangerine Dream, I think, could have done it because they they did do the soundtrack of the the Keep. Yeah, which is <laughs> very obscure, <laughs> and that soundtrack is figured out with print as well. But yeah, yeah. In terms they're the closest they could get. I think, I think Goblin were the closest to sort of Tangerine Dream. That weird sort of period in yeah. 70s music sort of fitted that. When they were, they well, Tangerine Dream did quite a few soundtracks back in the day as well. I think um, another group used to do stuff like that was Can as well. I think Can may have done something quite interesting of this. But Suspiria, you can't really think of the soundtrack without well, no, thinking of the film. And it was written before the film, the soundtrack. Yeah, which is, and I mean, when you think, I mean, I know Dario Argento does a, did a lot of work with Goblin and still does uh, stuff with Goblin. Um, but what I love about it as well is when you listen, and 
I watched this film first of all because I was doing different. Um, I think part of it, I was, I was, I was on, I was running, I was on the running machine, and I was watching some of it as well just the other day, after sort of the initial sort of what you know uh, viewing of it, and I had my headphones on whilst watching it, and I always, you know, you know something is being said whenever you hear the music, you know that there's something being yes. said, and I only worked exactly. that it says which. A lot of the time, I can hear witch in there occasionally. I can hear witch being, but there's some bits I can't understand because they're so low in the mix. Yeah. Some of the words, and you start to, it plays with your mind a bit, I think. It starts to sort of really, it makes you feel quite uneasy listening to it. Yeah, yeah, it does. Now, there are some, in terms of sort of the violence level in this film, um, there is sort of, there is a significant level of violence in it, but it's not... The sort of um, level you'd get in something like uh, Profondo Rosso or um, anything by Fulci, you know, it, it's got that level of violence in it, but it hasn't got that sort of. It's it's, t- it's a lot more compared to a lot of Italian because I think when we got Italian horror at the time, what's happening in the late seventies? You've got films like, you know, Fulci's coming out around about this, and the whole video nasty things is just around the corner, really. So yeah. this is when. Italian horror is going down a very violent route. But this one's quite, even though it's very excessive in some bits, it's quite restrained in comparison to the other ones. Yeah. It's a lot more stylized, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, that opening kill, the opening kill where Pat bites the dust, um, that is, it's, it's a mind-blowing scene. Mm. You know, and do you know the bit that gets... No, go on. What were you going to say? Go on. The bit that gets me is um, the fact that, you know, the demon managed to get two for one. Oh, that was very... That's only in, in that sort of dream logic world that could ever occur, because it's such a, a... In a way, a ridiculous scene when you think about it, because it's so <laughs> planned, so well planned out. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would have been an accident, because whoever, you know, whoever was doing all that, you know, they must have done that as a fluke. They probably no idea for that, but that person was going to be there at that time. Yeah. <laughs> you could just imagine this demon outside going, yes! Fuck yeah! <laughs> I could just imagine the top was going, oof. It was just sort of this look of just like, ooh, didn't, didn't see that one coming. Oh, 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 sorry, love. It, it, <laughs> it just played so, I don't know, it's hard to describe because it does reach a moment where it's sort of, Almost, it gets to the point where it's so ridiculous, it's almost blackly comic. Yeah, yeah. It's so over the top and strange, you're like, you just don't know how to react. It's very, very Italian, I'd say, as well. It's very Italian in the sort of excess and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing as well, the camera work in, the, in, in that, that opening kill scene is mm. spectacular. And I think the best way to describe it is the whole thing from, like, the Art Deco uh, set dressing... Mm-hmm. Um, it looks very, very cool. There's very few films I can say which look like it. There's only one film I can say which resembles it somewhat. Yeah. And I'd say probably the Abominable Dr. Fibes. Ooh. In terms of like the set, the Art Deco set design, the use of colour and all that, that sort of um, quite timeless look to it. Yeah. Because it's very timeless, but very timeless at the same time. I love Dr. Fibes. I think the- that's a great... I even like the sequel. I love the sequel, and I wish I'd... I viewed about the other sequels, and I wish they'd made them, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> more entertaining as they went on. Yeah. But um, about the design, it is that 
strange. It's well, I discovered an interesting thing recently. Have you noticed in this film, all of the rooms are bigger, are very big. All the doors are very big. Yes. Do you know why? It's because he wanted children. Yeah. He wanted, but he was told you could not get away with that. It's pretty fucked. You know, it's pretty fucked up if you think about it, because he wanted like twelve-year-olds. Mm. Now that is so want- dark. And I think it's and bear in mind what was what the Italian film industry was getting away with at the time. <laughs> yeah. And this is the thing, you know, they they were making films where actual animals were being killed in and all that. Yeah. And it was the moment sort of went, no, this is where we this is where we draw the line. Yeah. We're okay watching a turtle being eaten, but yeah. um children we draw the line. Yeah, it was and you sort of think is like how you just make you think, what would the world look like if Dario Gento actually got what he wanted on that one? <laughs> I mean, but, but also... even then, no, go on, carry on. Well, I, I think it adds to the strangeness as well because they are all, you know, they're all women in like in the late teenage years, early twenties, but they're all acting more like children. You know, they're sort of they're very yeah. naive. Yeah, they're very like, and that's quite eerie. It's yeah, it quite is. odd about. And, I mean, one of the things they did, mind you, they did not change large amounts of the script. The, pr- the script no, is they pretty... kept them something like children. Yeah, and hence why, like, the door handles are higher. And particularly the scene where um, Susie first arrives at the ballet school and the two girls get into an argument and they're sticking their tongues out at each other and pulling faces at each other. It's just bizarre. Bear in mind, they're all women in their 20s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is absolutely, it is really, really quite sort of, um, quite disconcerting. And but that adds to the sort of, um, fairy tale element, I'd say. Yeah, and I mean, going back to the fairy tale element, um, you know, one of the things that um, Argento um, used as his reference point uh, was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, was Disney Snow White and the Seven I Dwarfs. He told the cinematographer to study it, I think. He, he actually told him to go off and watch it. And, I mean, and use it as a reference point. Yeah, which, you know, when you look at the colours as well, actually, and particularly the, the reds and the blues, and you look at Snow White's dress and the way in which, you know, some of the scenes where you see Susie running and her arm movement, actually. Um, are very, they're very Disney-like. It's very that much that... There's a lot of elements of early Disney in there, especially the sort of more grim moments in, well, Brothers Grimm, you know, if you give the yeah. pun there, but... Uh, yeah, and I The mean, very dark but, side of it. Yeah, and I mean those original Disney films, and obviously the source material for the for the Brothers Grimm is very dark. It's very mm. very dark stuff. Disney ones. I know people use like Disney as like a byword for wholesome family entertainment, but you watch some of those films, and they are very unsettling. They're, especially Snow White is a very unsettling film at times. Oh, it's some of the it's, moments are horrific. Yeah, it is deeply, deeply, deeply dark. And you know the scene. You know the scene where um, the dwarfs go after the the, mm. you know, the wicked queen. That is, is just the end of oof, really, and really dark. The whole transformation is is quite horrific. <laughs> I think that's it's, the best description of it ever. When you first see it, you never forget it. You'll never forget the moment where you first see her transform. No, 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 and it is. And the way in which she transforms, mm. you know, that it's, is, oof, yeah. Fair was aimed at children as well. It's sort of mentality of, oh, kids can take it. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's understandable why, uh, you know, people do get sort of, um, do get creeped out when they watch it for the first time. And and sort of people's sort of first real exposure to horror, I suppose, is those early Disney yeah. films. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it, I'd say a lot of early Disney films are sort of your first experience of at least a scary experience, at least. But as we can sort of see, it sort of feeds back into Suspiria with, um, well, the whole witch angle for a start. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that feeds in there. Yeah. But I read recently an interesting um, influence over um, some interesting influences on Suspiria. Hmm. Go on. Do you have the biggest? Well, you know, it was um, the whole term Suspiria. It's it's a Latin term, isn't it? It comes from a book called Suspiria de, de Profundis. All right. Which I can't remember the writer's name. It escapes me. But it was more or less a book written on the, under the influence of opium. Nice. And the whole and the whole concept of the three mothers comes from this book. Ah, interesting. This, I mean, in, in terms of witchcraft and particularly sort of Wicca, obviously, the, the, you know, the you do have the influence of the mother maiden crone. Um, mm. But the mother maiden crone are are positive things. They are very very positive influences, um, and it's quite interesting that. Uh, Argento chose to sort of almost subvert that. Um, well, in the uh, Spirit de Profundis, there is, um, they are, you know, there's the, this is the first to end up becoming a trilogy afterwards, you know, not yeah. intended from the beginning, I think, but it turned into one. Um, but in them, um, every film focuses on the different um, mother mentioned in Spirit de Profundis. Right. Because in the book, there is Mater Suspiriorum, which if right. you watch Inferno on yeah. the soundtrack, that is actually chanted on the soundtrack. The different mothers are chanted. Right. But Suspiriorum is, the, is Our Lady of Sighs, which brings us back into Suspiria, because you also have the famous scene, was it the scene where the, the girls are up at night and they hear the sighing of one of the mothers? Yes, yeah, yeah. It's one of the most effective moments of the film, I think. I See, now, uh, now I don't know how you sort of feel about the maggot scene. Um... Again, it's just one of those sort of almost nightmarish scenes where the maggot oh, is is falling is falling through the ceiling. It's quite again, it's that sort of it is a it's a, it's that thing of nightmares, isn't it? That taps into a lot of people's phobias. Yeah, yeah. that taps into something real. There, so I think you know everyone's a bit. I think everyone would be sort of a bit unsettled by or a bit disgusted by. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean the. And then you hear the the snoring actually of the of the yeah. director. Um, that is really that's really creepy. Mm, it's a very it's a very long and drawn out and it's by far I think the scariest moment in the film I'd say because you don't actually see don't nothing really happens. No, and I mean it's not sort of it's not a I suppose it's not a frightening film. Um, no, from the point of view of sort of you know when you compare it to others, but it's unsettling. It's a lot more visceral, I'd say, in terms of, like I said, it's the assault on the ascent on the senses sort of thing. It just sort of doesn't really give you five minutes. It, it very rarely gives you a moment to sort of settle. Just sort of yeah, just to sort of. I think the bit with um, Udo Kier is probably the only bit where it kind of calms down a bit. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right there, and I think one of the things that that's you know, the Goblin soundtrack is so aggressive and so overpowering, um, and it sort of has this feel of doesn't it of this like sort of this broken music box type. Feel oh, well, to it. I think that's where it all came from was just the music box, and they used that as their starting point, and they based the soundtrack around that one sound. Yeah. Now here's the question, uh, Mr. Jones. I'm going to throw at you: is is this 
a giallo? If I'm going to be honest, I would say no to a degree because it doesn't tick all the boxes of giallo. It has elements from it. Yeah. But I don't think it has the all of the, you know, all of the sort of common tropes of a giallo. Yeah. It's got all the elements from there, but not not enough, I think, to really put it in there. It's not up there. It's not up there like Blood and Black Lace or Profondo Rosso or anything. Yeah. Those are very much giallo. But this, not so much. It's it's very much a break from it because, for the most part, most giallo weren't that supernatural. No, no, they, they weren't. weren't. They weren't very supernatural films. They had their elements of, like surrealism in there sometimes. So she performed a Rosso as his elements of like. Yeah. Yeah, surreal moments, but no, this is it's a strange one. This one, it's got elements of yellow, but it's also got elements of like gothic horrors in there. Yeah, bit yeah. of everything else. It's just it's kind of its own thing. Now I know I'm probably talking to um, lots of you know people who are interested in horror, and particularly Italian horror. Will obviously know what a giallo is, but for some people who are unsure what a giallo or a gialli is. Um, it's it's a genre of film and it's originated from a piece of literature um and sort of yeah sort of was it sort of it's sort of it's it it's the italian answer to lots of the sort of pulp american fiction yeah um, they were short crime stories they but they always came in yellow book they were always yellow yeah and that's when it's yellow because yellow is italian for yellow yeah well i mean the and, you know, been... and the reason why it's yellow is because the paper was cheap yeah, the chip like pulp in America. Yeah. It was the equivalent of a pulp novel. Yeah. Because they were cheap to produce and they were very popular. Yeah, and I mean they were sort of um they were very Hitchcockian. Um mm. and they had a sort of they had the mix of the thriller, you had the mystery, you had elements of slasher movies in there. You or slasher. Yeah, yeah. And I mean some people could probably say that um the giallo is the um the proto slasher, isn't it really? Um, they sort of came. They came in the wake of Psycho. Yes. So then they even further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somewhat, um, and they tend to sort of have that sort of. They're very operatic. They're very big. Um, very Italian. Yeah, they're very Italian, um, and you know, usually sort of uh, lots of sex, um, lots of nudity, lots of and, violence, um, oh. and occasionally quite a bit of narcotics involved. Mm. But it's very stylish, and they're always very stylish films. Yeah, they've always got. Very distinctive Italian style to it. Yeah, and they have this. There's something about them, even not the great ones. There is something about them that keeps you engaged. Hmm. Now, plots might be a bit flimsy sometimes. Yeah, or just don't make any sense. There's some kind <laughs> of like massive twist in the middle of it, and you just think, "Whoa, where did that come from?" Just, it's one of those, it's one of those twists where you're sort of like, yeah, oh, I didn't see that one coming, but I didn't see that one coming because it's completely ridiculous. So what I've come up with is just a couple, um, just four, four sort of jallos, if you're not that I think um, are good starting points um, to have a look at the genre. And what I'll do is I'll uh, for each of the ones that I'll throw the trailer in just to make sure that you guys uh, sort of to pique your interest. So first step. Um, I have got Mario Bava's 1963, The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Laura! 
supernatural powers of the evil eye claim still another victim. Its malevolent enjoyment of tantalizing torture hangs threateningly over John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza. Oh, she was always against me. She hated me. Madness. And the maddening aura that destroys reason fills their every breath with the smell of death. Miss Rawson, have you ever seen a murder before? No, no, I've never seen anything like that. Never. Oh, stop playing games, will you, Landini? I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know that you're, you're involved in this. Perhaps Nora has seen the killer. But how do we know that he hasn't seen her? The evil eye, like relentless tides, reaches out for them. And they defiantly hold ecstasy and horror in their arms and touch lips with terror, while the evil eye watches their every kiss and invades their subconscious. Giallo. Yeah, it's and one of my favourite is again by is one of uh, Argento Dario Argento's um, Giallo is is nineteen seventies uh, the bird with the crystal plumage. Tell me about it, eh? What's that? What happened? I want to know everything you saw and heard. Everything. Monica. Come on now, come on. Take go of me! I'm a dead Ranieri. She's my wife. Excuse me. Monica, speak to me. What happened? He's untiring her. Monica. Oh. Dear. Who did it? Who? again. I can't get it out of my head, but I can't manage to pin it down either. Let me finish. He isn't even Italian, and you're making him risk his life. 
Somebody's already tried to kill him once. Julia. And what makes you so sure they won't try again? You're blackmailing him. Look out behind! That's probably the one which set a lot of the the sort of standards for the rest of them. Yeah. It sort I'm, of set. Yvonne yeah. Barber set the groundwork. Argento kind of perfected it. Yeah. And then you've got A Bay of Blood, again by Mario Bava, 1971.
And I wouldn't, you know, I'm a big Fulci fan. I am a big Fulci fan. I know people don't, uh, you know, some people sort of deride his work, but actually I think Fulci is a very, very underrated uh, filmmaker. And one of my favourites is, just because it's just a ridiculous title, is uh, Lizard's, uh, Lizard in a Woman's Skin from 1971. It's a lot more respected in his canon, though, isn't it? I yes. think out of all this stuff, one of the ones that's actually got a bit more critical praise. Yes. Because I think it was, him being a bit more restrained compared to his other works, I think people sort of a bit more, yeah. a bit more of an artistic sensibility to it. of the abnormal there is no more erotic a nightmare than the strange story of lizard in a woman's skin by the way frank Hmm? you're not being unfaithful to carol are you that woman for you represents degradation and vice Please, I'm going completely mad. Julia Dura was murdered by the person she was blackmailing. Only she wasn't blackmailing your son-in-law. There's only one thing I can tell you. I didn't kill her. She was standing there in front of me, in her fur coat. So, she takes it off. Not a bloody stitch on. Mrs. Hammond, remember that anything you say will be taken down and may be given in evidence. Unbearable suspense that keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Contraband by Lucio. I Fulci. haven't. Oh, you've got to watch it. There, it's a, it's a sort of, um, it's more of a policia um, type film. Oh, it's yes. more, it's more of a crime film. It's more like it's got a lot of the mafioso in it. Oh, it's great. It's really, really good. It's very silly. <laughs> um, it has got quite possibly the best, and when I say best, the worst disco scene ever. Was uh, it dated in the way? Oh, there is just you know. It's right, you know. It there is just um, this. The strobe light in it will weed out any latent epileptics in your household. Um, it's just ridiculous. The soundtrack um, is it, it, look. I, I, I'm not going to pick it up anymore. Um, I'm gonna, you know, it's not a giallo. It's a policia. It's the crime thriller. If you get the chance, oh god, yeah, it's absolutely. It, 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 it's a it's a mad film. Um, and there's a one you missed out. I think I think you should mention it was probably Blood and Black Lace as well. Oh yes, 
how important that is for Giallo, especially for they pretty much established everything about Giallo. You know, the masked killer. Yeah. It's got like, all the, you know, it's got the, you know, the um, characters to be killed, but it's also got the style of the Giallo also in color. Yes. The use of color is very distinctive. Yes. So now to get back on topic, um, me personally, I think. Uh, I don't think Suspiria is a Jallo. I think, like you said, it has Jallo elements. Now, mm. the other question that we need to ask, is Suspiria an art house film? Or is it exploitation? Or is it exploitation posing as an art house film? I'd probably say all three to a degree. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did this in university, actually. We actually had this argument about... Um, what, where you know where does art house begin and where does exploitation start? Because we actually look at a lot of art house films. Yeah, they do border exploitations and things. You know, if they'd if it'd been filmed in a certain way. Yes. It would. Like, think about it. you know, um, Last House on the Left. Yes. It's a remake of an art house film. Mm. Ingmar Bergman's Virgin Spring. Yeah, I can see that influence on it. Um, I, it I directly based on it. I can yes. Um, I don't think I would ever call Last House on the Left um, an art house film, though. Oh, no, but it's rooted in it, though. Yes. Okay, I'll give you... Yeah. yeah. But they were the influence there. That's the thing we did sort of describe, but a lot of fans of exploitation films and cult films are also fans of, like, art films and, and a lot of the masterpieces of cinema. Yeah. Like, they will... In the same conversation, they could discuss Citizen Kane and then discuss Suspiria and saying, you know, they could talk about them in the same sentence. Yeah, I mean, I... Me personally, I Citizen. I oh god, I, I'm going to get some stick for this. Probably Citizen Kane bores the shit out of me. Oh no, I I was I kind of went in with the mentality of that I wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to like it. I kind of had that sort of you know. I've um, tried. I've tried. I have people. I have tried. It, uh, <laughs> it, it for me, um, and I say it all the time. For me, The Exorcist is the greatest film and book ever made. Um, you were you know. Do you with that one? What's that? Mark Kermode is a is a said oh, yeah. said with the yeah. greatest film ever as well. Yeah, I mean the the effect, um, the profound effect The Exorcist had on me, and the book, um, the book. There is something about the book, and you can take so many different elements. Um, you, I think it's a film that changes with your mood. Um, and I think The Exorcist could be if you are, um, if you're in a sort of bit of a downer. It's got a real downer of an ending. Um, but if you believe in the sort of the goodness of humanity, um, I think also it's a film that um, you can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Really. Now, uh, here's the big question: Is this? Art house exploitation. So you know, I think you've got a good point. You're saying that it's um, it's all three. It's all of those things. Um, mm. And I mean, it's you know, and I mean, there are so many elements to this film that if you sort Praise of it's been catered to every single audience in a way. Yeah. You know, the sort of exploitation audience of it, the horror fans have taken it, the art house fans have taken to it as well. Yeah, it's got people yeah. respect as well. It's been taken. You know, everyone's taken something from it, which is quite impressive for a genre film, because genre films tend to leave a lot of some people cold. Yes. Now, what is your take on um, the ending? 
to Suspiria. Yes. Because it kind of sort of, it builds and builds and builds, and you get that great moment where Susie discovers her friend in the coffin with the pins in her eyes, mm-hmm. and, you know, the fact that she's been nailed um, to to the coffin. And then she comes back, and you get that great sort of, uh, you know, sort of almost zombie-type moment with her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it kind of ends quite abruptly. Yeah, well, the thing... I think so. Was it? Isn't there a line in the film when they say that the coven without its mother pretty much won't survive, and as soon as the mother is killed, yeah, literally the house dies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the house goes with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's true, and I think sort of um, it. But it, I, I just wanted a little bit more of a climax mm. because we'd it probably into a corner a bit. I think. Yeah, and it's almost like they got a, they sort of went. Oh, we're all a bit tired now. Let's, uh, let's did just... exhaust themselves somewhat. I think. Yeah, let's just get let's just get to the end of it. Uh, you know, yeah, that's it. Just 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 stick the imaginary white line. The short, <laughs> the special effect of um, the, um, the the director um, with the sort of the flash flash of lightning, and you see the outline of it. I don't think that's aged well. It's a very it's a very odd. But I think it adds somewhat to the weird atmosphere of it as well, the sort of surreal weirdness of it. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, I, and I did, the, oddly enough, though, I do think as staccato as some of the performances can be, and I think some of that comes from, um, obviously, people conversing in different languages in the same scene. Yeah. Um, I do think overall, though, the level of performance from the cast in this is very good. They're quite consistent. They're pretty consistent with each other, and they, you know they sort of fit together. And I say even Jessica Harper's quite impressive in it. You know, for quite years she was quite a, a new actress at the time. I believe she hadn't had much work before. I know she's in Phantom of the Paradise, I believe, isn't she? Yes. Oh, I love Phantom of the Paradise. But she's um, she's she was quite a bit of a newcomer at the time, though, wasn't she? She wasn't really a a big name. No, she wasn't a big name, and I mean, sort of, she sort of, I mean, in in terms of her sort of uh, her filmography. Um, I mean, she's, you know, she went on to do quite a bit. And I mean, she's still working now. Um, and I mean, when you look at like some of her early stuff, um, she was in, like you said, The Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, she was in Suspiria. She was in Hawaii Five-0. Now that's a leap. Isn't it? That's, that's, a, that's a big bloody leap. Phantom of the Paradise, well, Suspiria, Hawaii Five-0. I still say that's quite typical of people who are in genre filmmaking because they always do turn up in the weirdest of places. Because they are most of the time, they are literally they'll take whatever work they can get. Yeah. So you would <laughs> actors in the strangest. You would see actors in the weirdest places sometimes. You would see, especially a lot of British actors. I noticed you'd always see them turning up in the strangest sort of things. Yeah, and I mean the thing that I couldn't get, and it was only when I was sort of researching and sort of you know looking at people's backgrounds and those type of things. She was in shock treatment as well. The, sequ- the sort of the, the you know the sequel to the Rocky, Rocky Horror, Horror Show, Steve. the one everyone forgot about. Yeah, uh, for good reason, because um, <laughs> it's crap. Uh, I actually, know some you for that. Actually, what's that? I actually know someone who's a fan of that film. Honest, to God, I just can't. I like Richard O'Brien a lot. I think he's a very very clever man. I'm a you know myself and my wife we're huge fans of the Rocky Horror, and we've been to see it. I don't know umpteen many times. But I don't. Oh, I can't. Leaves you cold. Yeah, there's something about it. It's just something that sort of you know, 
just doesn't sort of fit with me. Just can't, just doesn't quite sit. The uh, lost potential, is it? I think so. I think so. I definitely think so. Um, well, the thing is, actors to up when we had things, Udo Kier, his career is bonkers. Yeah, he showed up in a lot of Uwe Ball stuff. Mm, he's one of those actors, he, he's usually the best thing in something he's in. Yeah, um, probably with the exception of Barb Wire, um, oh, the Pamela Anderson that. vehicle. I think, we, I think we can all try to forget about that one. <laughs> but he is great in um, the in in uh, Blood for Dracula and Flesh for, Flesh for Frankenstein. Yes, yes. Do you know what I have? Um, I've only ever seen Flesh for Frankenstein. Is one of those films that no, you sort of whenever you try to watch it, you always end up getting interrupted. Yeah, I've got a few films like that. Yeah, and name quite a lot and i don't know what why what why it's that film you know why it's those certain films that it seems to happen to you with and I, it's quite strange yeah it's sort of ah well you know i think and another film um very very i have the same sort of thing whenever i put it on i think this is the time i'm going to watch it um and i've and never, never i've never got to the end of it is actually robin hood prince of thieves with kevin costner Oh, I've I've watched a bit of that recently, and it's not held up very well. You know, Robin and Malibu. Um, I always get to a certain point, and then something happens, and I never get back to watching the end of it. It hasn't aged very well, I think. It's one of those films that's sort of very of its time. Yeah, <laughs> it's very rooted in that time, and it's yeah. yeah work today it's just one of those ones that doesn't really work now but with Suspiria can you say there's much of an influence today do you think it's influenced popular culture since oh I think so and I mean you can definitely see and I think the Jalo in particular had a massive influence on Brian De Palma huge influence on De Palma Um, I mean I know people give him stick for being a sort of a subpar Hitchcock Um, but actually I think he draws from a much a much deeper well a lot of the as well yeah 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 um i mean it's got you know in terms of like who it's influenced i mean you know, it's the color scheme pops up in sort of lots of different winding things Red. nicholas winding Red. yes Had that film here um neon demon i didn't get to see it all i was seeing is a lot of it i've been hearing the comparisons to suspiria quite a lot yeah yeah i mean the other thing i think the other film the Nick, nicholas uh when in ref in film um the is it uh god only god forgives only god forgives now the color scheme in that as well and the way in which that is shot gives a kind of suspiria feel in certain elements he's uh, a man who's very genre savvy he's a very genre savvy director he is um i i mean i think drive is a brilliant film I think mm. Drive is a really, really, really good film, but I do think sometimes I, I wish somebody would say it's okay to have dialogue. Yeah, he's very minimalist. He's very um, yeah. He's a very visual actor. Yes, and I think sometimes it means that I think sometimes the substance in his films are lacking. But you can definitely see um, the superior impact on him. I mean, you know, when you look at sort of, um, I mean, you know, from. Uh, particularly music, Suspiria, you know, and then the Goblin influence is sort of. Uh... Well, interestingly, there was a. Um, there's been a few bands named after Suspiria. Mm. There was apparently a Norwegian thrash metal band called Suspiria, spelled of an E instead of an I. Right. There was also. Yeah, you said. Uh, there was an 80s 
a 90, there's a Norwegian thrash metal band called Suspiria. Yeah. And there was a 90s goth, um, British gothic rock band called Suspiria. And I think having a gothic rock band called Suspiria is a match made in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the other thing as well, which I think we need to discuss, um, which is probably the elephant in the room, um, is the upcoming remake. I wonder if we to this. Yeah, I know. I we're gonna have to mention it, and we we're gonna have to say, you know, this is. Uh, I oh, just leave things alone. It's a weird one because they've announced it, and they've announced people I like in it as well. There's a lot of actor actresses I like in it. I mean, it's got a good cast. Um, but a lot but... of films are good, and they're not very good films. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the, you know, you look at the class, it's got, obviously, it's got um, uh, Chloe uh, Mortiz, it's got Dakota Johnson, Tilda Swinton. Uh, well, I think would, if there's anyone who's going to be in a Suspiria remake, I think Tilda Swinton is oh, yeah, one of all of them. She's perfect sense. for it. She's absolutely perfect for yeah. it. But you just, I don't, do they need, does it need a remake? Maybe doing a Suspiria-like film, you know, something which draws influence from it, you know, something which will make you think of Suspiria, but... Doing Suspiria again just seems a bit... Lazy. What can you really do with it? Yeah, I mean, do we need to be... So, you know, do we need so to be remaking can... all these classics? It, well, that's the thing. We had this conversation with, um, I think, The Wicker Man. We ended up having The Elephant in the Room that happens the remake. Yeah. Is that to be a good film you've got, you know, you've got to cover on this show? You've got to always have to mention for the fact there's a remake of it, <laughs> out there. Yeah. You have you found the film yet, which actually hasn't been... Re- have you covered the film yet, which actually hasn't been remade? Um... Yes, we've done a couple. There's a couple in there. Um, but it's more the exception than the rule. Th- yeah, it is. That, and that's the awful thing. You, know, you do feel like, why do you, you, when you see these remakes coming out, you think, why do you kill the things I love? Um, well, I do like that I have that, di- like uh, I saw, um, or even like sometimes like, having sequels to certain horror films is getting a bit redundant now. I think, I think some horror films perhaps just stand on their own. Yeah, and I think actually... I think you've hit the nail right in the head there. And I think Suspiria as a film, yes, its influence is far reaching, but it mm. does stand on its own. And it, uh, did have a, it did have two sequels, but they kind of stand on their own as well because they're all like more sequels in theme. Yes. And I think it's, it, it's, and I think as a film, it is strong enough to be quirky, odd, different. Uh, and just bloody strange for large proportions of it. Yeah, it wasn't really anything at the time. No, and I don't. You know, I think lots of people have tried to imitate. I think lots of people have tried to. Um, and again, you know, they, at the moment, like I said, this remake is due, but it is a film on its own. I think it is a film that stands apart. I think Dario Argento as a filmmaker. Um, I think this is his masterpiece. Um, I agree. I think, he, don't get me wrong, he's done some fantastic work. Um, but well, this I, is when he peaked, I think. Yes, I think you're right. I think he sort of, he peaked with this film and I think he sort of, he was able to sort of really see his own sort of, you know, to see his vision through. Hmm. Well, I think he sort of, well, I think he never really reached the same level afterwards. No, no. He came close a couple of times. He came close. I think Opera is a very, very good film. I like Inferno myself. I do like Inferno. Yeah. I think it's a good film. Yeah. It's it's a worthy success in a way, but with this, I don't think he ever reached the same heights as this. In terms of, like, I don't think, well, I think 
I don't think he'd reach the same heights in terms of, like, the critical praise, in terms of, like, the popularity of this film. No. And, I mean, this film, when you look at it, it's got some... It is incredibly artful, as we've already talked about. The score is superb, but it's also got the set pieces. And, I mean, the one Mm. set piece that we sort of... um, that we sort of uh, missed out is the you know the blind pianist being eaten by his own dog. Oh, that's a horrific moment. As it, well. is, it's a... it is, but it, it works so well, and the build up to it, the build up to that scene is just is 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 immense. It's well, a... as I say, but a lot of horror films work the same way as a joke will, you know. But there's a punchline to it, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, what's interesting though um, is. When you look at my when I went researching it, one of my favourite um, uh, one of my favourite sort of write ups from this was from Film Illustrated in October nineteen seventy seven, and it says, "Take care, director Dario Argento is out to scare you to death. Suspiria <laughs> simply never lets up. If you like it, um, it is. Um, if you like it, is pitched on one note, and that's hysteria." But it matters not a jot in the realm of terror where laughter is purely a defense mechanism and Suspiria is the most terrifying film I have seen in more than a decade. Well, I've just been looking at some of the reviews now and I think there was, there's some terrific reviews of this. My favorite one is uh, Jay Hobman from The Village Voice. Yes. He said a movie that makes uh, that makes sense only to the eye. Yeah. Which yeah, sums which is, it up pretty Yeah, I, I suppose if you try and sort of sit down and sort of... Um, talk about it like we're doing now, or overthink it. Um, it like does, a mess. Yeah. Um. Actually, my wife. We sat down. We watched it. Um. And I did tweet this the other day. Uh. Because it just made I me laugh. Um. She turned around and, and she just. We just finished. It had finished. The final scene. The credits are rolling. She turned to me. And she went. It's a bit daft in it. <laughs> it is in a lot of ways because it's. I mean. It's it's one of the few examples. You know, people use this as an insult quite often. You know, they say something style over substance. Yes. In this case, I think that's quite a compliment to it. Yeah. Because it's style so good. The style of it is so good. You kind of you you sort of forgive any sort of problems it's got in terms of like the plot or in terms of like um, how the story's told and all that. You know, you forgive it for all those little flaws because it's just it looks that good and it sounds that good. Yeah, yeah. I think you know it is a it is a film that does you know stands up to multiple viewing. It does stand up to multiple multiple views, um, and I I've got to be honest. I really really love this film. I think it's it is a masterpiece of Italian horror. I think it's a masterpiece of horror in general. To be honest, I think yeah. I think there's a case for that. I think there is a case it's... from that. A lot of people do make the argument that it may be the greatest Italian horror film. You know, a lot of people make that argument that it might be the best Italian horror of all time. Yeah, I think I think there is. You know, it depends on what you like from your horror, isn't it? I mean, I think some people like the gore. Um, I think some people like the extremes of it. But I think this. I think Suspiria marries all those elements very, very oh. well. One interesting thing to point out about the film that makes it actually a bit of a, um, well, I think I'd better describe it. Well, it makes it quite, you know, well, not even influential, but an important film. It's one of the last films made in Technicolor. Well, I, do you know, I did not know that. 
I did not it's know. One, and that's why it looks so distinctive. They say it was one of the last films of its kind at the time. Well, they recently started making Technicolor films again. Yeah. But at the time, this was one of the last of its kind. And there is something about Technicolor, though, isn't there? It's unmistakable. There is something about it. There is something about Technicolor. There is something that 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 feels organic. That sort of that that sort of. But also otherworldly about it as well. Yes, which fits nicely in with this nightmare of a film because I think fact, it's, the colours are so unnatural. The um, lighting is so unnatural. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of the very few films actually. Um, that really embraces the colored gel on the light. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, and I think it was a very brave and bold choice for Argento. Um, one film I'd consider to, in terms of Technicolor, it's also a film to do with ballet, The Red Shoes. Yeah. Now, I'm not a massive fan of the ballet. Um, I have been to the ballet. I have been bored senseless in the ballet. But... I think there is something that, that is profoundly dark about certain elements of ballet. Well, it's the torturous element to it, the fact that it does make people drive people to extremes. Yeah. Like, think about how many films have got. Almost every film but ballet portrays ballet in quite a dark light. They've got this. And Red Shoes, I think, is the ultimate ballet film. Yes. Yeah. The whole thing of it is a woman who's so obsessed with it. She, you know, they literally, it literally takes her over. And you've got, like, Black Swan is another one. Yeah, no, I like, again, Black Swan, I think, is a great film. I think it is a great film. Suspiria's influence in there as well, yeah, I think. Oh, you, I think, you know, you can feel it sort of, it's uh, Suspiria's witchy claws ebbing throughout cinema, I think. And, mm. I, and I think that's why this film is so profound. Um, so yeah. So, let's, let, let's sum up. Let's surmise, if we can, in any way, shape or form, what are the things that, um, make Suspiria such a classic for you, Liam? I say I think the art direction, the sort of the style, the set pieces, just every, just the look of it. It's one of those films where I think the style of it is the star of the show. Yeah, you know, just the set design. It's if you if you love your set design, this film is like if you love your cinematography, set design, and lighting, this film is. The perfect film for you, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> now, is there anything that doesn't work for you? Um, there's moments, you know, like sometimes it's got one of the problems of some Italian films where the dubbing doesn't quite add. You know, the dubbing is a bit dodgy sometimes, and um, it's a bit distracting. Something you know, a lot of it. Yeah. Like, the problem of Italian films, I'd say, when they were dubbed into English, have got that problem of like some of the dubbing isn't particularly very consistent, and as I said, the plot is very non-existent at times but yeah it's yeah. so it's so much in it that you just you can't get angry at it you know you can't get annoyed at it no i think you're right i think you're right um i mean for me i think this is a gloriously bloody sumptuous technical nightmare um mm. with a score that grips you um and drives the film um, I think on the on the senses. Yeah. Oh, totally, totally, totally. And I think that opening, the opening scene from where she um, leaves the airport, or she's walking through the airport, um, and she arrives at the school, and then you get that incredible set piece with that that that, that hairy arm pulls the girl through the window, um, and then oh, she's yeah. eviscerated, 
and then her head goes through the glass, the, the, the stained glass, and then they're all falls down, killing her friend as well. Um, I think from that moment, you know, I remember the first time I saw that, the film had me. And regardless of whether it made sense or not, for me, that was it. I was hooked. It had me. Um, it's going to top itself. I was going to top, you know, yeah. I, I, if is it going to go from here? And then, you know, going back to like, you know, and the scene with the dog, um, the um, the moment, you know, the, the maggots falling through. Um, and Barbara's horrific as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then the ending sequence, I think, is spectacular because it just goes completely insane. Oh, completely. Completely. And the soundtrack was with it. Yeah, and it sort of, you know, when she's like running, when she, when you see her like, and she's running, and she's running out of the, uh, at the end with things that, you know, are now burning, and she's running out. Again, that's wonderfully gothic, isn't it? It has that oh. fantastically gothy, almost Dickensian feel, particularly when you look at like the wallpaper and the art deco we feel to that. It's, yeah, it, it almost has the sense of like Miss Havisham. Mm. It does have that Miss Havisham feel to it, and um, I, I mean, I love it. I absolutely love this film. I think it is a classic. I think it is a, um, it is a must, must own for anybody who um, has an interest in horror. Anybody who has an interest in cinema, I think it is. Mm. It, it, I think it's a fantastic film. Um, so I'm going to go first of my score for this film, and uh, I'm going to score it. A nine out of ten. Over to you, sir. I'm gonna say I'd give it a nine point five. I'm gonna cheat with that one. You're gonna, you're gonna go nine point five nine? Oh no! I've, just I, that point five. Just you know, just for those little little flaws. Just for the little flaws. I like that. The the point five for the flaws. No, I think it's. Uh, I think that is absolutely uh, spot on. Well, sir, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on as always. Um, you're one of these people who I feel that, uh, you know, you was, you know, my IQ points rise a little bit whenever you're in the room and whenever we're discussing cinema. Um, you bring a bit of credit, you know, credibility to it. Uh, so, as always, thank you very much for being on. And is there, you know, can you tell our listeners to uh, where they're going to find you? Oh, God, I've got a, um, a blog of my own, which you can post in the link if you want to. Yeah, we'll pop that in there. No problem. Yeah, I keep forgetting the title. If I call the blog itself, I'm not quite sure what the URL is, but I call it the Pop Culture Museum. Nice, I like it, that. It's more or less just a, a complete mess of things, because I've recently just been... I recently did an article on a... Um, for the first time, I very rarely cover TV series in it, but I covered a Japanese anime on it recently. Okay, which series was um, that? Um, Serial Experiments Lane. Okay, not heard of it, not seen it, but okay. <laughs> psychological horror cyberpunk sort of affair nice that's nice. worth looking i have a look into that uh, so a good place to start i think and also i did back in october i did my 31 days of horror where i did a, a short article on a different so so different horror it was a different aspect of horror every single day so i nice. covered a film a show a book a video game or even music over a 31 day period excellent outstanding outstanding is there anything else you can think of? Because I know you're on Twitter. Um, I'll put your links on Twitter. Um, yeah. You've got your Instagram. I do I regret it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as always, sir, thank you for being on the show. And I can't wait to have you on again. That's not a problem. Hope to be on soon. All right. Take care, my good man. Speak to you soon. Thank you.
No problem. Hope you have a lovely day. And yourself. Take care, man. Take care. Bye. Okay, and once again, I want to say thank you very much to Liam for being on. Font of knowledge, always a pleasure. Um, But now we come to what the Wookiee watched this week. And first up, we have Pumpkinhead from 1988. Let's check out the trailer. Now it begins. Deep in the Appalachian Mountains... They say that an act of evil shall never go unpunished. There they tell of a creature who shall come from nowhere, born from the blood of the innocent, to hunt the guilty. And they call it Pumpkinhead. They are strangers here. And what began as harmless fun ended in tragedy. <laughs> Anger. Well, it was an accident. And revenge. It's what you wanted. You gotta stop. Now the spell has been cast. The terror is loose. The horror is here. Pumpkinhead. Oh, I love a good trailer. Um, no, this film was obviously it was released in 1988. And it was directed by legendary effects master Stan Winston. It was written by Mark Patrick Carducci. Um, Stan Winston also had a hand in the script and Richard Weinman. But the film was actually based, or the idea for the film was based on a poem by Ed Justin. Um, It stars Lance Henriksen, Jeff East, uh, Joan Diaquina, uh, Kimberly Ross, Joel Hoffman, Cynthia Bain, Kerry Remsen, Lawrence Schaefer, Matthew Hurley, and George Buck. Um, I really, really, really like this film. Um, and I think it's a great, it's a great piece. Um, it's something that whenever it's on, I have to watch it from beginning to end, even though I own it on DVD. Um, and it is, it's a brilliant, brilliant story. Uh, you've got, it's a simple story. Um, you've got, after a tragic accident, uh, which results in the death of his only son, Ed Harley summons the vengeful demon Pumpkinhead to destroy those responsible. But very quickly, he realises what he has done. Uh, Stan Winston's only film as a director. Um, now, this film, I think it showed that he had real potential as a director. Um, you know, It looks fantastic, um, and at no point does it slow down. Um, and as you'd expect, the the makeup effects and the actual creature effects are top draw. I love the creature effect of Pumpkinhead. I think he's absolutely superb. Um, and on this show, as always, you know, I'm a big Lance Henriksen fan. Um, he's just outstanding in this, and he, you know, here he gives a great performance. Um, he gives a real method uh, performance here, where you know he went out and. Uh, 
bought his own costume. He collected all the silver dollars that he uses in the film. He even went and found the the, the shotgun that he carries around. Um, and he, again, I think Lance Henriksen, I've said it before and I'll say it again, he's an actor who can elevate material above um, above its sort of genre basing. And um, he gives a great performance in this. So uh, for me, uh, it's a must-see. And I'm going to give this one a... 7.5 out of 10. So up next, we have got AVP. That's right. Alien versus Predator from 2004. Let's have a little look at the trailer. Seven days ago, one of my satellites over Antarctica discovered a pyramid. Where exactly on the ice is this? It's not on the ice. It's 2,000 feet under it. Let's make history. Oh, my God. Whoever built this pyramid believed in ritual sacrifice. Did you hear that? Did you say this room was called? Sacrificial chamber. This door is all here. This whole thing was a trap. They're not hunting us. We're in the middle of a war. They're using us as bait. Yes, that's right. Alien versus Predator from 2004. Directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, written by Dan O'Bannon, Paul W.S. Anderson and Ronald Shusett. It stars Sandra Lathan, Lance Henriksen, uh, Raul Bova, uh, Ewan Bremner and Colin Salmon. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. The undead Wookiee watching bollocks so you don't have to. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's a pretty simple idea, so I think you kind of get the gist from the trailer. Uh, how things can go so badly wrong when you think... Uh, oh, I don't know what to say about this film. It should be brilliant. It should be brilliant. It has everything that you want. It's got the alien. It's got the predator. 
It's a pile of crap. Um, it's just... Oh, it's just terrible. Um, this is a film, you know, this, this could have been so good. This could have been so good. And I hate giving really bad reviews of things, but there is just... It's just a mess. The film is a mess. Um, there are very few redeeming features about it. There are some, you know, as always with uh, Paul W.S. Anderson, I think his films do have some kind of visual flair. Um, I enjoy Lance, Henriks, Lance Henriksen's performance, but then I probably enjoy him reading the phone book. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's just it's just not good. Um, the The general cast um, is poor. Um, Ewan Bremner looks kind of embarrassed to be there. And then when you actually come down to the sort of the aliens versus predator moments, they're really badly choreographed. They're really badly shot. I think it's just, ah, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just not good. Um, however, I can't quite bring myself to sort of really bring, you know, to give this, uh, like a two, um, but I'd say avoid, um, and I'm going to give it a four out of ten. And so it brings us to our last segment on what the Wookiee watched. And it's another Paul W.S. Anderson film. And it's Resident Evil from 2002. Let's check out the trailer. Thank you. Deep underground. In a top secret research lab, security has been breached. A deadly virus capable of contaminating the entire world has been released by Umbrella Corporation. Oh my god. We have to get out of this building. It's the break! Okay, we're here to help. Now, an elite team has been sent in to stop it. Five hours ago, Red Queen went homicidal. Who's the Red Queen? State-of-the-art artificial intelligence. The corporation's keeping a few secrets down here. Something you're not supposed to see. But they have only three hours left before it begins infecting and mutating the whole human race. Everyone stay calm. What's that? She bit me, man. She took a chunk clean right out of me. You have to get out. Don't listen to anything she says. She's a holographic representation of the Red Queen. She may be our only way out of here. How oh, is she still standing? isn't standing now. No one is immune. Resident Evil. You're all going to die down here. Okay, we are back in Paul W.S. Anderson land. 
Of course, the film was directed by him. It was written by himself. And it stars Mila Jovovich. Uh, it stars Michelle Rodriguez and James Purfoy. As you know, it's a simple story, isn't it? You get the outbreak, you get the zombies, and then you get everybody fighting to survive. Um, now, i got to admit, this is kind of a guilty pleasure for me. Um, is it um, a great film? No. Does it have faults? Many. I think uh, Michelle Rodriguez's performance is... she's I, Again, she's an actress who is very, very good at pulling tough, and that's about it. She gets, she's got two sort of expressions, angry and really angry. Um, and she sort of goes through those that, that, that full range of emotion that we see here. Um, I mean, this film would go on to spawn several sequels and make a lot of money for a lot of people. Um, it's sort of, you know, it does lack in a number of areas. I think it's got some god-awful CGI in it. Um, the acting by the majority of the cast is fairly wooden, and it's hindered by some awful dialogue, awful, awful dialogue. But visually, it's very, very appealing. Um, I'm a, I like the Slipknot soundtrack. I think it's got moments uh, where it's particularly entertaining. It's the type of film that you can just sort of throw on in the background and sort of just be getting on with your day and just sort of doing different things and it can still be playing and you can quite easily follow along. Um, I think overall, it's a very, very silly film, but it manages to entertain. And for that... I'm going to give it 5 out of 10. And so, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of another episode. As always, I'd like to say thank you very much to everybody who has tweeted, who's retweeted, who subscribed to the channel, who has gone to the Facebook page. Honestly, thank you so much. It is really, really humbling. Um, I've had some fantastic interaction um, online with some people who are really enjoying the show, particularly our last episode. So um, thank you very much. Um, I also want to say, as always, some big, big shout outs to my man Blake at Spivey Point. You can find him on Twitter at Blake at Spivey Point. Um, I think you may have a vested interest in the next episode uh, should, that's going to be following this one. Um, that's all I'm saying. I'll just leave it at that. Um, my man CJ over at VHS Revival guys if you're looking for a blog to read that's funny, that's witty, that's informative get over there and uh, see him as always I want to say a big shout out to Dave Dr. Shockbecker um, for him for retweeting, for following um, thank you very much uh, you can find him over at Land of the Creeps podcast with Gregor Mortis great, great podcast um, of course I want to say a big shout out to Jay of the Dead on the Horror Movie podcast and Josh Legary over there um, again, it is one of my, it is my favorite uh, movie podcast. It's fantastic. Um, I want to say a big shout out to my man CT Phipps. Thank you very much, guys. Again, if you're looking to um, you're looking for something to read, get over and read his superhero, or super villain, sorry, uh, trilogy. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I want to say a big shout out to CL Raven, who have uh, been demolishing spain as we've recorded this episode um so thank you to them um i want to say a big shout out to of course jeff and al over at cadavercast guys absolutely love your show keep it going um and fingers crossed jeff will be able to put something together and maybe we'll be able to get that warlock episode there 
that we've been talking about up and running at some point. I will get a date for you soon, my man. Um, and as always, to everybody who tweets, who listens, who subscribes, I want to say thank you very much. So, in the immortal words of Count Dracula, good night out there, whatever you are.